All righty. Good afternoon. So many of you folks I know, for those of you who I know, hello. For those of you who I, uh, I don't, I look forward to uh, meeting you uh, this afternoon and uh, maybe being able to sit with you over a meal uh, this evening. I'm Bruce Ashford, uh, serve as provost here and professor of theology and culture, married to Lauren. And we have three children, Kuiper, uh, Anna Kate, and Riley. So uh, two years old, five years old, and six years old. And it's been my pleasure to serve here at Southeastern as a faculty member for about 13 and a half years now. Uh, came off of the mission field, uh, served with the IMB for a couple of years, and then came here to, uh, to Southeastern. Let me uh, get us uh, kicked off today. My assignment, so uh, with our Intersect Conference, here's how it's going to go. Our, um, we're we're going to begin by casting that broad to talk about the relationship between Christianity and culture. And what it is we even mean when we say culture. <clears throat> the relationship between those two. So we're going to cast the net broad. We're going to narrow it a little bit and talk about uh, workplace and vocation. And uh, Walter Strickland and Benjamin T. Quinn will be doing that for us. I've got a very creative presentation, you know. And then uh, we will talk about economics, Christianity and its uh, relationship to economics and economic systems. And then we will have a historical presentation by Dr. Brent O'Quinn. So I'm going to kick us off. We've got a, a broad variety of types of folks in the room. We've got some folks here who have taken seminary degrees and some who have not. We have a number of you here who are pastors, probably two-thirds of you here, and then about a third of you who are not. And so I'm going to do my very best to be able to deliver the goods in a way that is interesting and helpful for everybody in the room. Let me start by uh, telling you a little bit about an experience I had when I lived in Russia. I moved um, in 1998 to live in a predominantly Muslim uh, republic in the country of Russia. It's a corner of Russia that, that uh, was about 60% Muslim and 40% Russian. And uh, I left here, and I had never left uh, the country before. I grew up in the Deep South and stayed there and had never left the country. So when I stepped onto Lufthansa Airlines on October the 20th of 1998 to head to Russia, I had no idea what to expect. And I didn't know Russian yet either. I was going to learn that when I got there. So it ended up being an incredible two years. We were able to plant a church. Our team was. Um, but aside from the church planning, I'm going to focus in on the intersection of Christianity and culture for just a moment. When I arrived in Russia, um, had a number of challenges. One of those challenges was geographic. It was uh, winter was eight months long in Russia, and it got down to 40 below zero. So it averaged 10 or 15 below, but it got down to 40 below. You could go outside and take a mug of coffee, piping hot mug of coffee, and throw it into the air. And the only thing that would hit the ground was ice chips. So it freeze instantaneously midair. So very cold. That was a little bit different for me. Culturally, it was a, a challenge. I mean, I knew that I didn't understand their language, but I didn't know even that body language was different. So when I got to Russia, I did my best Southern, I put on the Southern charm, you know, and I smiled at strangers in public and said hello to them and said, how are y'all doing? And my buddies pulled me aside after a couple of weeks and said, man, you just, you really have to stop grinning all the time and saying hello to strangers. It's just weird. And so I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm letting them know, you know, that, that uh, you know, I'm a good guy. You know, that's how you let people know you're a good guy in the South. And they said, no, you're not. They said, you're, when you grin in public, especially at strangers all the time, they think that you're drunk on vodka or uh, mentally challenged or that you just got out of a psych ward. All right. So you really got to quit it. So there were cultural challenges. There were um, uh, culinary challenges. 
Now, most of the food I loved, and when you're in a freezing cold environment, they make really good hot soups, hot teas, and so forth. But I remember a couple of weeks in, I had breakfast with a buddy of mine, and after a four courses for breakfast, um, um, what, I had, what I didn't realize is that if you clean your plate, uh, it doesn't mean, <laughs> thank you, this was good. It means I'm really hungry and you didn't give me enough. So they just kept bringing more. But the last entree was fish jello. So not jello, but uh, uh, gelatin, uh, congealed fat with fish in it. And so that was, uh, I found that a challenge. Um, and uh, uh, one other quick one, uh, there was the banya. It was a recreational challenge. And uh, the banya, my friends, said it will be a lot like an American sauna. And it was, in that it was a square room. And uh, it did have some heat in it. But the difference lay in the fact that after they um, got down to the birthday suit, they whipped each other with birch branches, uh, starting at the ankle and going all the way systematically up to the, the shoulders. And I thought that was different. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, all kinds of challenges, but the biggest challenges were ministry challenges, and there were Christianity and culture challenges. So, um, I was interacting mostly with Muslims and atheists, and I was interacting, and the Islam there was an Islam that had been affected by Marxist atheism. And so it was almost like a, it, was a, it was a dead Islam in the way that you would have a dead Christianity. There was a sense of despair. I think a hollowness that I experienced, my students found it very difficult to believe in anything or anybody, uh, to believe that any one thing that they were told is true was actually true. They found it difficult to trust people. They had been let down. Their cultural institutions reflected this sense of loss and reinforced it. And I noticed that the Russian church, which had been almost beaten to its knees during the Soviet period and had to retreat behind um, you know, closed doors, was sort of venturing out and trying to figure out this question of how do we enter back into the public square and influence it f uh, for the good of Christ. And so that two years for me was the, was the major awakening for me of understanding the need to figure out the relationship between God's saving works and word on the one hand and society and culture on the other hand, all right? And there's not a lot of consensus or agreement within Christianity or within evangelical Christianity. I'm going to go after that in just a moment. And so it's not like I'm lobbing a softball and knocking it out of the park. Um, what, are, what is the relationship between God's saving works and word and art, science, politics and public life, your work, your leisure? Um, before we get to that, we need to define the word culture. So when I ask what is the relationship between Christianity and culture, we have to define our terms for just a moment. Now, when I use the word culture, I mean, it's a very slippery term. It's probably the most elastic term in the English language, okay? So when I say the word culture, some of you immediately are going to have in mind high culture. Rembrandt's paintings, Picasso's paintings, Mozart or Bach's music. So I am referring to that, but I'm referring to a lot more than that, all right? Others of you ha may have in mind um, popular culture. You know, um, popular music that you listen to, movies that you like, and that sort of thing. So I do mean that, but I mean a lot more than that. Uh, yet another group of you, when I talk about culture, you may have in mind uh, what the Bible talks, to, talks about when it talks about the spirit of the age, okay? And so for you, you may be thinking that culture is something pervasively bad and that we're against it entirely and thoroughly. And so that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, the spirit of the age has corrupted 
all institutions in any culture to some extent or another, but I mean something bigger. So what is culture? Let me define it for just a moment. I would say that culture is that which results when God's imagers interact with his good, good creation. In a moment, I'm going to say that it is fundamentally constitutive of what it means to be human, that we are culture makers and culture engagers. It's fundamental to who we are. Before we ever even needed redemption, that was fundamental to who we are. This is who we are. We are cultural beings. So I'll make that argument in just a moment. Um, <clears throat> so uh, culture is the product of what happens when God imagers, God's imagers bring out the hidden potentials of God's good creation. And it encompasses the totality of our lives, and we cannot escape from it, nor should we want to. You cannot preach the gospel except in cultural forms. You cannot build a church except in cultural forms. You cannot do anything in a way that is actually separated from culture. We are thoroughly and pervasively cultural beings. And so we cannot escape from it, and nor should we. And I'm going to argue later that the new heavens and earth is a thoroughly cultural situation. So we won't be separated from it in eternity either. So what is an appropriate view of Christianity and culture? Now, there's different ways of approaching this. In uh, my most recent little book, entitled One Nation Under God, I trace it in a slightly more scholarly manner than I'm going to do it right now. And I trace it as a discussion of the relationship between grace and nature. So if you want a slightly more scholarly discussion, go to that book, uh, One Nation Under God. But what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to use the um, set of categories that I used in the book Every Square Inch. All right? And I'm going to give three basic categories for how Christians historically have related Christianity to their broader cultural context. And then I'm going to locate myself in one of those categories and argue that that's the better biblical category. Um, then to give you a, a view of what we have ahead, what I'll do after that is try to make the biblical case for it by tracing the biblical narrative in four plot movements, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. After that, I want to give you three money questions that you can ask. Anytime you enter a given sphere of culture, three questions you can ask that will help you to discern what the Lord Christ would want from you in that situation, in the midst of that uh, sphere of culture or that cultural activity. And then after that, give a concluding challenge. Hopefully we'll have some time to do some Q&A. Um, can you all listen quickly if I speak quickly? Can I get some more affirmation? A little, yes. little call response here. Um, okay. All right. So I want to speak quickly because there is so much to say and so little time. So the first view is, uh, that, that I want to offer of the relationship between Christianity and culture is Christianity against culture. Now, in this view, Christianity is, um, and culture is inherently bad. All right. And, uh, societies, Christian societies tend toward this view, uh, more often, the, the more corrupted their culture and society are. Um, and so we will tend to sometimes paint with too broad of a brush and uh, dismiss everything as being profoundly and thoroughly bad and then therefore draw the conclusion that we must withdraw from it, separate it from it, and view life as basically nothing but a war. Well, life is a war, but it's also a joy and adventure and a trust. Life is so many other things than merely only just a war all the time. So I would, if I were going to nickname, uh, there are two nicknames I could give. There are two variations of this view. If someone's going to be Christianity against culture, uh, uh, they might view the church as a bomb shelter on the one hand, or they might view it as an ultimate fighter on the other hand. All right? So under the bomb shelter view, what we're doing is we're viewing ourselves as, be, as being under a fierce assault by sort of ungodly cultural forces from without. And so we, we hide 
and we're bracing ourselves uh, for, for the bombing. Um, <clears throat> the other view is a little more aggressive. It also views uh, our cultural context as being evil and corrupted uh, in such uh, a way that we, that, that, uh, we, we don't want to be a part of it, we want to separate from it. Uh, but we um, view the church as an ultimate fighter that does nothing but uh, sort of theology as martial arts all the time. Okay, so that's Christianity against culture. Second view that I want to mention is the, back to Christianity against culture for just a moment. Um, I think the monastics, the monks, often in the medieval Catholic church uh, were this view, uh, almost the bomb shelter view. I think some Anabaptists held this view. Sometimes it was more of a bomb shelter, sometimes more of an ultimate fighter mentality. And then I think many uh, conservative American evangelicals hold to this view in one way or another, more or less. Number two, Christianity of culture. Um, in this view, and I'll just start by saying this is the classical liberal view. If a person is a, a classical liberal theologian, then almost always they will be located in this view, the Christ of culture view. But I want to say that conservative evangelicals, we conservative evangelicals often lapse into this view and sometimes at the same time that we actually hold the Christianity against culture view. In other words, sometimes we're inconsistent. So the Christianity of culture view tends to view culture as inherently good. There's just something good about it. So it, it latches on to the opposite truth that the Christianity against culture view latched onto. The against culture view latched onto the evil that's present in culture. The Christianity of culture view latches onto the good that's present. It sees the beauty of Mozart's music and the joy and excitement of so-and-so's contemporary popular music and the cathartic release of having a good laugh at a great comedy. You know, or whatever. It latches onto the good in culture but then tends to view culture as inherently good. Um, and so what we tend to do is accept our culture uncritically and incorporate it seamlessly into our lives. This view could be, uh, we could consider the church, we could call it as, uh, you know, the church as chameleon, always changing its colors as the culture changes its own color. I think we're going to see a lot of this in upcoming years. We're already seeing it. I think the Obergefell v. Hodges decision it's sort of uh, symbolic in one sense, I think, of the fact that we have forces arrayed against us, the political left in combination with uh, the entertainment industry and the major corporate players in the United States. And there is going to be financial pressure and social pressure and legal pressure to sacrifice our convictions. And I think we're going to see a lot of people flip-flop and uh, not hold to their convictions because we've never experienced that sort of pressure before. We've always had the moral high ground. We've always had sort of the cultural power. Christians have, not always, but more so in the past than we will in the future. And then third, Christianity in and for culture. So in this view, this is the view that I want to pick. And so if we simplify into three categories, this is how I would put the best category. That this is Christianity in and for culture. So in this view, culture is a mixed bag. It's not inherently good and it's not inherently bad. And I'm going to make a distinction in just a moment. In fact, let's make it now. I'm going to argue that culture is structurally good but directionally bad. Let me give a brief definition of what I mean by that. And when we get to our biblical argument, I'll go after it even more. So when I say that culture is structurally good, I mean this. That before the fall, 
God's world was structurally good and directionally good. Structurally good in that the fact of its existence is good. The fact that God had created the type of world where we would make music and have human language and uh, write books and make houses and, and, and clothes and this sort of thing, the fact of it is good. Directionally, culture was also good before the fall because Adam and Eve's hearts would be directed toward God in worship. After the fall, culture remained structurally good. Okay? The fact of its existence, the fact that God makes us cultural beings, the fact that we have music and, and uh, higher education and uh, automobiles and, and, and these sorts of things, that is good. So, that, so I'm saying that the world is not bad and we shouldn't separate from it. This is still God's good world. And the evil one is not powerful enough to make bad what God has made good. That's a very important point, and there are many Christians who would disagree with it. If you get that point wrong, you're going to get a lot of other things wrong. The evil one does not have the power to make bad what God has made good. So it remains structurally good. Directionally, however, culture is corrupted. What do I mean by that? The Bible talks about religion um, as, as something that is located in the heart. Over 800 times the scriptures talk about religion being heartfelt in some way or another. But when the Bible, in other words, it, it, it affects us in the deepest recesses of who we are, and it affects the whole of our being. But when we say that religion is heartfelt, we do not mean that it is private. It's personal, but it is not private. Precisely because religion is heartfelt, it radiates outward into all that we say and do. So a person has got their stated religious beliefs, I believe in the God of Jesus Christ or the Allah of Muhammad, but they also have functional gods like sex and money and power. And sometimes it's those functional gods that actually sit on the thrones of their hearts, commanding their lives and shaping their loyalties. So whatever it is that we make ultimate in our life, our heart is directed toward that thing. And when our heart is directed toward it, it affects the way we make culture and engage culture and receive culture. So any given human culture is going to be misdirected because it is full of people whose hearts are not true north toward God in Christ. Do you understand where I'm headed with that? So on the, on the micro level, a person's heart can be either directed towards Christ or misdirected. Then when you take it to the social level and combine all of those people together, culture is a mixed bag, sometimes directed toward Christ, sometimes not in a country like the United States. So structurally good, directionally bad. And so what I want to argue today is that we ought to thank God for uh, the different dimensions of culture, art and science and education and sports and competition and business and entrepreneurship. These are good gifts from God. We ought not try to separate from it, and we ought not to think that our eternity will be separated from it. I mean, I'll, I'll make that argument in, um, in just a moment. So we want to bury ourselves in the middle of our cultural context, realizing that we are cultural beings and shape all of our cultural activities toward Christ so they'll be directed true north instead of towards a false god or an idol. So let's take a moment right now to build a very concise biblical theology of culture. And I can recommend uh, some books that can help you uh, expand on that a little bit. In fact, I'll mention one right now. There's a very short paperback book. Um, I'll give two of them. Um, one, um, one is called Creation Regained by Al Wolters, W-O-L-T-E-R-S. If you have a little bit more scholarly inclination, that's the book for you, even though it's only 80 or 90 pages. And then if you want a book uh, that's uh, written uh, uh, for a trade market, a little bit less scholarly, 
It's called Heaven is a Place on Earth by Mike Whitmer. Now, that title might scare you, but you don't need to be scared. It's a, it's a fantastic and trustworthy book. Okay? So that'll build a fuller biblical case on what I'm building today. But here's what I want to do. I want to remind you, those of you who are pastors, I think, uh, or get, you know, uh, you probably say this regularly to your congregation, but the Bible in its 66 books and numerous authors in multiple genres comes together to form a beautiful unity. It has a deep inner coherence. And one of the ways that we can show that coherence is by showing its narrative coherence. Just that there is a unified story being told because there's a unified storyteller. That's God himself. And so uh, the Bible story can be told in four or five or six acts. I'm going to tell it in four. Um, this is kind of a worldview way of telling the biblical story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I want to apologize ahead of time. I'm going to have to leave out many things, including some of the most important things, precisely because we only have 10 minutes and we've got to focus on this thing that we're calling culture. Okay? So when we start with creation, and I'm going to spend most of my time on creation, and here's why. Um, it's foundational to understanding what culture is, and it's also one of two plot movements that we evangelicals ignore on a regular basis. We pay attention to fall and redemption, and we ignore creation and new creation. We take the two bookends and lop them off and think that we can theologize with merely fall and redemption. So I'm going to start with creation. So in the beginning, God created the world, and he created it good, and he affirmed it six times as good, 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 very good. And so God's world is good. Um, that's a literary marker. That's the author sort of shouting, putting a red flag, saying, hey, listen to me, pay attention. Did I make my point? The world is good. Um, <clears throat> When he created the world, so let's talk about his good world in relation to culture making and, and so forth. So God created man and woman in his image and likeness. Now, uh, theologians have debated what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. Many of them have, have uh, said that we are image bearers. I don't like that language that much. I prefer imager because image bearer makes it seem like we're sort of carrying around God's image, like under our arm you know, and, or, or in some place of our, our humanity. And most theologians, medieval theologians, would locate the image of God in the brain. Or some would locate it in the soul. I want to say that the whole person is the image of God. We are imagers in the whole of who we are. And if you want to figure out sort of what that means, one way of figuring out what it means is by looking at the commands that God gave humanity when he announced that he had just created them in the image and likeness of God. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, till the soil have dominion. Be fruitful and multiply is a social command. It's a command to marry and have families and make babies and ultimately build societies. So that's social. He told them to till the soil. That's a cultural command. Um, not just agriculture, but all types of culture. Think about this. This is profound. God had just created the world and said emphatically and repeatedly, it is a good world. And the very next thing he said is, I want you to change it. I want you to make something out of it that I didn't make in the first place. I want you to bring out its hidden potential. I want you to do something with my world. Inherent to who we are as humans is that we take God's good world and we make something out of it. It was his intention all along before the fall, and that's what we're going to see displayed in the new heavens and earth. We have a new Jerusalem with all of its architecture and art and song and, uh, and so forth. <clears throat> and then finally, have dominion. So we had a social command, a cultural command, and then have dominion is a regal command. 
The Genesis account is a kingly account, even more than it's a priestly account, I think. And God is saying, I'm the king. I created and I rule. And he said to man and woman, and you get to lovingly rule underneath my rule. So a regal command. Social, cultural, regal. All three of these things really apply to, we're, to what we're talking about today when we talk about the relationship between Christianity and culture. Think about this. Before sin has been introduced, we have been told who we are. Who are we? We are social, cultural, and regal beings. We build families and societies. We make something out of the world that God has given us. Things like art and architecture and song and, and so forth. And we lovingly manage God's world under his good rule. This is what it originally meant to be a human, and that was not erased by the fall. The fall just adds an extra layer. So if you want to separate from culture, I need you to know, this is what I would say if I was speaking to a congregation, then you are dismissing a f fundamentally who you are as a human being because you are a culture maker and cultural engager. Now, in order for us to be able to obey those commands, God had to give us a number of capacities. So let me work through those quickly. Give us a spiritual capacity. We can know and love God in the way that our pet, little, uh, little Liberace, cannot or whatever you name your, your pet, little, uh, little Bon Jovi. And, uh, and so there's no way that a, a, a dog or a rock or a tree can know and love God the way that a human can. I think we understand that. I mean, um, we, are, we have a moral capacity to do the good and the evil in a way that a, a pet cannot or in a way that an inanimate object cannot. But aside from spiritual and moral, I mean, most people stop there, but let's not stop there. God has made us rational beings. We can use our minds and we can think. We can, uh, you know, build airplanes and computers and so forth. I mean, you can take a thousand monkeys and stick them in a room for a thousand years with a collection of tools, and they're not going to come up with much other than a pyramid of bananas, right? But you stick humans in that same room and you'll come up with an actual pyramid. You'll, come, you might, you'll, you'll eventually come up with a computer, a laptop, an airplane, because of our rational capacities. Um, creative capacities. God gives us the ability to use our imaginations to create and to make something out of his good world in a way that animals and rocks and the trees cannot. Um, he also gives us re uh, relational and physical capacities that are different from the animals and from the inanimate creation. All of those capacities combined um, make us the culture makers and cultural engagers that we are. Now, <clears throat> To wrap up creation, and we'll go quickly through the others, at, at the time of creation, the world was marked by what we can call shalom, all right? The uh, Hebrew word shalom is usually translated peace in English, and that's okay, but we don't have a word in English that can carry the freight of the Hebrew word shalom. And so if we want to carry all of the freight of the Hebrew word shalom, we have to cluster together a number of English words. And so let me give that a whirl for just a moment. At the time of creation, God's world was marked by universal flourishing, rightness, order, peace, justice, charity, and so forth. All of the good things. Adam and Eve had a right relationship with God, with each other, with the world, and even a right relationship with self. Now, let me explain that. I know that seems weird that a person would have a relationship with himself. It sounds like a guy who's standing in a room uh, telling himself jokes and then laughing in astonished appreciation at his own wit or something. You know, it seems odd. But all I mean by that is that human beings were an integral whole. There was nothing broken or corrupted about us. We were rightly related to self. We get to the time of the fall. I'm going to go very briskly here. It ruined everything. 
it misdirected all of our efforts because our heart was no longer directed to true north toward God in Christ. It was now fixated on something else. Human beings are fundamentally worshiping beings. We are always worshiping. Atheists worship every bit as fervently as anybody else. And when our heart latches onto something other than God in Christ, then our cultural activities are warped and corrupted as a result, misdirected. Okay? And so if we were to go down that whole list that I just gave you, I would say that we now produce, uh, we now have a fallen society, corrupted and misdirected culture, and bad dominion. Our spiritual, moral, rational, creative, relational, and physical capacities are twisted and corrupted. And we now have a broken relationship with God, with others, with the world, and with uh, the self. So we have a broken relationship with the self. We have psychological disorder. We have medical dis-ease. We have a, a disunity, a fundamental disunity of who we are as humans. Brings us to the third plot movement, redemption. That... Uh, and fall and redemption run on parallel tracks together from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 19. Because immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, God came and promised a Savior in uh, Genesis 3 verse 15 and following. And uh, that Savior is Jesus. And when Jesus came, um, He lived the life that we should have lived and died a death on our behalf. I won't spend as much time on this most precious moment of the biblical narrative because everybody in this room knows this moment. But I will apply his crucifixion and resurrection to culture for just a moment. The Bible teaches us that he was crucified and resurrected, uh, first and foremost, for sinners, right? And this is the thing that we understand and know very well. But it also teaches us that his crucifixion and resurrection was for the whole world. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 says that he is reconciling all things unto himself. Not all people, because not all people will be reconciled, but all things. Anything with the quality of thingness is going to be reconciled by God. Well, things are related to culture. So what do I mean by that? I'll be there. I'll get, I'll get there in just a moment. Romans chapter 8 says that creation is groaning, waiting to be liberated. So I think that God is not going to carpet bomb the earth that we live on. I think he's going to liberate it. A carpet bombing or annihilation is not liberating. It's something like the opposite of liberating. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 says something very similar. And then, uh, and I'm going to kind of, for now, for the sake of time, move into our fourth plot movement, new creation. And I want to mention three things about new creation. The first is that um, the Lord Christ, when He returns, will give us a new heavens and a new earth. And the first big point here is that the new heavens and new earth is a physical, material earth like this one. Okay, so it's not a cultureless or creationless existence. We're not souls. I used to envision heaven when I was a kid as I was just a soul floating around in some sort of ethereal never-never land, you know. And that is not what our future eternity will be. We're going to have our bodies. The resurrection is a down payment on the fact that God will resurrect our bodies, and He's going to resurrect this heavens and earth. So when He brings a new heavens and earth, I think it's this heavens and earth. Now, there's disagreement on this, um, but I think that it makes sense that the evil one cannot make bad what God has made good. And so the passage where Peter says that the world will be destroyed by fire, that can also easily be translated as found by fire or purified by fire. So I think that fire is a purifying fire that does not annihilate it out of existence, but purifies it. It takes everything that has been misdirected and corrupted, and it heals it and redirects it toward Christ. Why does that matter for culture? Here's why. It means that the physical material aspects of our existence are fundamental and constitutive of who we are, and it means that they will not be denied or rejected by the Lord Christ one day. They will be cleaned and purified, 
In our existence, the Bible teaches us new heavens and new earth is a fundamental, I mean, just, it is a social and cultural and regal existence, just like He created us for, replete with art and architecture and song. as we rule under God as He rules over the whole universe. And at that time, the image of God in us will be restored where our spiritual, moral, rational, creative, relational, physical, and whatever other capacities are made right because our heart is made right. Our heart will once again be true north toward Christ and therefore our social, cultural, and regal activities will be redirected toward Christ rather than misdirected by our sin. So that's the grand narrative of Scripture. And notice structure and direction op, um, operative in all four of those plot movements. That this thing that we call culture remains something structurally good in creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And yet after the fall, during the time of fall and redemption, culture is uh, directionally corrupted. Structurally good, but directionally bad. Because as our hearts are misdirected toward idols, our cultural activities are also. So with that said, what do we as Christians do now? I want to give you three questions that are fruitful questions. They're easy to ask and hard to answer. Anytime you walk into any, a sphere of culture, that sphere of culture might be art or science, scholarship or education, business or entrepreneurship, politics or economics, sports or competition. In any of these arenas, we need to ask three fundamental questions, and those questions really align with creation, fall, redemption. So the creation question is this. What is God's creational design for this sort of activity? Now, that's very difficult because the Bible is not a culture manual. It, you can't draw a direct line from the Bible to a piece of art or to how to do art. You have to do a lot harder work than that. You have to ask questions about why God created the world and how that would affect the way that we do art or science or whatever. But what is God's creational design? Um, number two, how has this sphere of culture been corrupted and misdirected by sin and idolatry? Easy to ask, but hard to answer. It's more complex than we would normally think. How has the United States' idols of individual freedom, sexual pleasure, financial gain, personal and corporate power, how have those idols warped and distorted every cultural institution in our country? And the thing is, Evan, you know, we, we tend to not be very good at self-critique, right? We're all, all of us. We're, we're good at critiquing other people. But the real test of our Christianity is when we're willing to locate the idols in our own hearts and within the evangelical camp. Because judgment starts in the house of God, right? And we, we begin with the house of God and we move outwards. And so that's the second question. The third question is, how can I then bring healing and redirection to this sphere of culture? Let me give a very simple example, and uh, just uh, you're going to laugh at me. It's an example about which I know very little, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to give an example of something uh, sort of everyday that many people in a congregation might encounter. Let's say that I'm a restaurant owner. So for the restaurant owners that watch this video, maybe you can clean up the mess that I make. <clears throat> um, 
thought this would be more relevant than uh, showing the corruption and misdirection of systematic theology, <laughs> you know, or public theology. So let's say I'm a restaurant owner. I want to ask, what is God's creational design for the, the type of activity that I'm engaged in? And imagine the answer, um, you know, a beginning of an answer would be something like this, and I'm supposed to provide uh, food that nourishes rather than kills. I'm supposed to help people instead of hurt them. Uh, within the limits of the type of food that I'm offering, fast food versus nicer food, etc., you know, can I offer food that's good, that actually nourishes people? That seems basic, right? It's intake. It's what we put in our bodies. Um, in one way or another, that this restaurant needs to be rightly related to the rest of society. It needs to help society flourish instead of hurting society, whatever that means or whatever it looks like as a restaurant owner. <clears throat> I, as the restaurant owner, will want to have a relationship with the people who work with me that is life-giving instead of life-destroying, right? Where I treat them as human beings created in the image and likeness of God and try to lead them toward Christ. And if they're already believers, try to continually lead them even more toward Christ. These are the kind of questions, it's kind of a way that you would answer this. How has uh, the restaurant industry been corrupted and misdirected by, by sin? Oh, I don't know. I mean... Um, you've got people who serve bad food and they serve it intentionally. You've got people who, um, who's, uh, I mean, there's financial corruption. You've got businesses that don't pay their taxes. Um, you've got managers who don't care about their people, who treat them badly and inhumanely. You, um, you have businessmen who never give a thought even after they've made their, their money and their business is good and they don't have as much to worry about, who never give a, you know, a thought to giving back to the community. So these are corruptions and misdirections, very general types of things. So how do I bring healing and, and redirection? I don't know. Maybe I build a restaurant that, uh, where I provide the most nourishing food that I can within the sort of genre of food that I'm providing that the, my sort of customers can afford. And I try to create an environment where my workers can flourish and be ministered to at one level or another, and where my restaurant gives back to the community in one way or another. Now, I've left that at a very general level because I'm not a restaurant owner. But these are the sorts of questions and answers that we've got to teach our congregations to participate in. And here's why. I want to go back to, uh, to Russia for just a moment. What I realized in Russia is that there was almost no plausibility structure for evangelical Christianity in that country because all of its cultural institutions and social influencers were diametrically opposed to the gospel. And so I think we, we're approaching and getting closer and closer to that sort of thing in our country. We're not anywhere near that, but that's, that's the direction that we're headed. And what I want to do is I don't want to limit my witness to any small venues or um, selected venues. I want my witness for Christ to be found as far as the curse is found. If there's any, any square inch, if you will, of our society and culture that has been corrupted and misdirected by sin, and that would be every square inch of it, then I also want gospel people acting and speaking in restorative manners in every square inch of that same culture. And if we are going to have the combined witness that we need to have, it's going to have to not be limited to local congregation uh, meeting together on Sunday mornings or interpersonal witnessing encounters we have when we knock on people's doors. I mean, those sorts of things are absolutely vital. But equally vital is that when our church lets out, that we send them out on mission into the stations of life in which God has put them so that they can honor 
uh, the, the, you know, the Lord Jesus in both in word and in deed. Let me give an analogy for just a moment about words and deeds that are going to help you see why culture making, culture shaping is important. Um, <clears throat> people often talk about what is the priority between preaching the, what's more of a priority, preaching the gospel or, uh, or, or um, living, living out our Christianity. I refuse to answer that question. Because when you say there's a priority, what's generally understood is that if you have to give up one and do away with the other, then you'll, you'll give up one and do away with the other. The Bible never gives us that choice. I can use priority language if I want to. I'd rather use centrality language. That the preaching of the gospel is central to everything we do, but it should never be done apart from obedience. I mean, which one should I do? Speak the gospel to my neighbor or refrain from committing adultery with his wife? I mean, which is the priority? That's a, it's a really odd question, isn't it? There's really not a priority. The priority is to obey God all the time and speak the gospel all the time. So centrality. I'm going to give a wheel analogy for just a moment. Because on the priority thing, liberals tend to emphasize good deeds, however they, can, they define those good deeds. Conservatives in, in uh, theology tend to emphasize gospel words. And what I'm going to say is we have to emphasize both. Conservatives have to emphasize both because we're under the authority of God's Word in submission to Christ. So here's the analogy. Um, so um, I grew up not being allowed to watch uh, television or movies and so forth. And uh, so I did a lot of reading. And uh, one of the series we read early on when I was five or six was Little House on the Prairie. And we were actually allowed to watch the television show Little House on the Prairie. It was uh, somehow better, better than other shows. And I remember for the first time seeing uh, covered wagons, right? You remember the covered wagons? Imagine the wheel of a covered wagon for just a moment. I want to talk about the hub, the spokes, and wheel. I want to compare the hub of a, of a covered wagon wheel to gospel proclamation. That's the hub of the Christian mission. I want to compare the spokes and the rim to gospel deeds, Christian obedience and Christian life. I'm going to argue that for the wagon to go forward, if the Christian mission is compared to a wagon for the moment, maybe somebody else can come up with a better analogy. But if it's going to go forward, you have to have both. There's no priority. Oh, I'd rather have a hub. I'd, I would rather have a spokes and a rim. Um, I'd rather have all, actually. And so if you remove the hub, gospel proclamation, the wheel collapses. You've got nothing. If you're not preaching the gospel, people aren't coming to Christ. Right? But if you have a hub and no spokes and rim, the wagon's not going to move very much at all, is it? And so in order to get traction and for the wagon to move, you've got to have both. And this is what we're arguing in culture, that we want to be speaking gospel words and doing gospel deeds. Let me, uh, I might actually have a minute or two for questions here. Let me say one final thing. We do this as a preview of Christ's coming kingdom. One of the first objections, there's lots of objections to what I'm saying. And, uh, I, you know, one of them is, are you saying that we can usher in God's kingdom? And my answer is no. When have I ever said that? Absolutely not. We can't, only Christ can usher in God's kingdom, you know, the kingdom. However, what I can do is be a preview of that kingdom. Have you ever seen, when you're watching a television show, basketball game or something, a 30-second commercial comes on, and it tells you that a movie is coming out in July. And it gives you the most exciting or the funniest scenes from that movie, doesn't it? so that it makes you want to go and buy that movie. Our lives should be a preview of Christ's coming kingdom in a way that that 30-second excerpt is a preview of a coming movie. That our, the way we live as Christians and communities should be so compelling 
that it's a foretaste that makes them that want the feast that is to come. And so this is our goal. One final statement. We engage culture and make culture because Christ's lordship is as wide as creation. He created everything. His lordship is as wide as creation. If it's as wide as creation, it's as wide as culture. And if it's as wide as culture, it's as wide as the totality of our lives. And so what we want to do, we want the whole of our lives to be an argument of one thesis. And that thesis is that Jesus is Lord. All of our words and all of our deeds, cultural deeds.